Hi everybody, welcome back to another Experience by Design podcast. I am your host for today, Gary David. Today's guest is a colleague of mine at Bentley University, Elizabeth Rosenwig, where she works in the User Experience Center. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to Liz at this moment is because she is one of the founders of World Usability Day. Now, World Usability Day happens every year, and this year it is happening on Thursday, November 14th, 2019. And I really didn't know much about it before getting a chance to talk to her. I'd heard about it. I didn't really know what it was. But it ends up, very interestingly, founded in 2005 by the Usability Professionals Association, which is now the User Experience Professionals Association. And it really is aimed at examining how to make products, goods, services, things, experiences more usable. And towards that end, it has actually taken on a life of its own where it has spanned the globe, being celebrated around the world. And as I record this right now, uh, Elizabeth is in Amman, Jordan, actually celebrating or getting ready to celebrate World Usability Day. And Elizabeth's career really does span a lot of the rise of user experience. Uh, from her early days trying to study photography, trying to be a photographer up in Vermont, taking pictures of cows and things, nature, as a self-described hippie, and to her arrival at the MIT Media Lab when it was first founding. So by, by talking to Liz, we actually get into a very interesting conversation about what is user experience, how does user experience relate to a lot of other experience areas like customer experience or employee experience? Who belongs to whom? Who sits on top of the usability or the experience pyramid, I should say, and looks down upon everybody else? And we had a lot of conversation around where things are going to be going in the future as, as technology changes, society changes, our understanding of the importance of experience changes. A lot of what we do as experienced design professionals is going to change as well. So it was really exciting and I was glad to have the opportunity to chat with Liz and get a, get a perspective of the experienced design space in a very longitudinal way and to bring this conversation with you right now. Hope you enjoy it. came to graduate school, I thought I would go to Rhode Island School of Design. Like, oh. this is the crazy story for me. I was living in Vermont, you know, having been raised by hippies, basically, and didn't want to be involved with the man any way, shape, or form. I'm like a very young baby boomer, like the, the youngest group. So I applied to graduate school, and um, I just assumed I would go to Rhode Island School of Design. I'm not exactly sure in retrospect why I was so sure. But I had gotten a lot of grants and I had, like a lot of my friends, like I was living in Vermont and I had actually gotten, you know, Vermont Council and the Art grants to do like tons of photography shows. Of cows? No, of like, of like um, an old mill that was turned into a mall, uh, you know, things like that. Right. Like evolution of spaces. Okay. Uh, no cheese. No, no, no nothing. Shows. Well, I did have to photograph turkeys, which wasn't fun one time, but. Yeah, they're mean. <laughs> really mean. Um, <laughs> But then, uh, you know, it's interesting because um, I think I was a rebellious, not rebellious kind of a kid. I'm the oldest in my family. 
And my parents, uh, when they heard I was applying to graduate school, suggested I apply to more than one school. And I was like, it's fine, you know? And um, my dad discovered that there had been a photography department at MIT. Um, but it turned out that they had folded it into what was about to be the media lab. Okay. And and so this was like the early the mid '80s, early '80s. He I remember what he told me he drove over to MIT because they lived nearby, and he was teaching at BU and Tufts and a, a variety of places. He picked up all the, you know, registration sure. application, mailed it to me. The pamphlets. And then I remember getting it and calling him and like. No way, it's the man. I'm not going to MIT. I'm not, not, not. And he's like, ugh, just apply. So I applied, and um, I first <laughs> heard from RISD that I was rejected, and I honestly thought my life was over. Because I just didn't, assumed I wasn't going to get into MIT, and also that if I went in, like, I didn't really want to, I, I kind of didn't really want to go there. Right. But then I got in. So, I so kinda, RISD rejected you and MIT accepted you. Yeah, so I went to MIT because I also kind of was out of options. <laughs> and I also thought, like, don't be an idiot. <laughs> you right. got in, go. Um, and so then I went to the media lab, and I was in the first graduating class. Uh, and it really clearly helped my career. <laughs> so when you talk about the media lab, like, you know, for those who don't know what it is, what is so this it, thing? Yeah, so the it The media used, lab. So it was started in 85. I graduated June of 85, so I was literally like one semester in that building. But it started off as the Arts and Media Technology Center. Okay. And they were taking a handful of artists like myself and technology people, and they were throwing us together to create things. So we built something sort of like Photoshop before Photoshop happened. And so my job was like I... I, and this wasn't formal, but in the lab we had to have projects. So I found the folks who sort of knew about design or filmmaking, but were programmers. Right. And then together we we came, like, I'm like, okay, I, I think it would be great if we could have a tool that, like, I put my picture up and I could paint over it. <laughs> and right. then they would do the programming and we'd go back and forth. And so when I graduated, uh, well, so anyway, so that's what the Media Lab started off as. What year is this? So it was 85 when I graduated. So uh, at this time, there's like no design thinking. No, that's right. It was all pre-design thinking. So my thesis advisor, may she rest in peace, Muriel Cooper. So she was the first woman on the faculty, and she was actually came out of the MIT Press. So she designed that MIT Press logo. Just, yeah, yeah. Know it. Um, and so what I mostly remember about that experience was that we had no money. Our group mostly had no money. So I like taught photography as a way to get through, like they, you know, found an undergrad photo class, and I, but right. like in the other labs, <clears throat> they were getting tons of money. I guess some of it did come from Jeffrey Epstein. We mm. find out later, but okay, yeah. whatever. Whatever. Not all of it. Not judging. Uh, maybe well, a little I'm bit. A little bit. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> I'm judging. <laughs> um, but anyway, so so the lab I was in was called the Visible Language Workshop inside the Media Lab, and we were doing more graphics. So like. Uh, we're the lab that actually, not me, my thesis advisor, Muriel Cooper, she invented flying text. Like, flying text didn't exist. That was her thing. Flying text. We see it all the time. We don't think about it now. Right. Animated letters, animated logos, animated graphics. So when my students do bad PowerPoints, she's to blame? Well, no, they're not. I mean, I mean, because like, the thing's spinning in, it's flying in, yes, it's coming in. She started that. Okay. Yes. She started that. So, yes, right. absolutely. Um, so, and then other colleagues, not 
always in there, uh, did things like that. So like I, we were working with Ben Schneiderman at uh, University of Maryland, and he was doing direct manipulation, which was like, whoa, you could take, because we, this was before graphical user interfaces. This is like we were typing in mm -hmm. command line, Unix, right. whatever, uh, to make something appear on the screen. So the UX was really starting off with UI. Like we're gonna design a screen, we're gonna design something in, you know, in between a person and a technology. And then over the years it's spun off, like now the Media Lab has this like opera of the future where robots are doing operas. They have um, prosthetics. There's a guy, Hugh Herr, who he lost um, both his legs in a climbing accident. And so he has developed these prosthetics that basically kind of thread into your nervous system and work like your actual legs. So like he gave a demo there one time where he comes out in zip-offs, of course, right? right? He's coming out, there's a climbing wall on the stage. He like, you know, does a little lecture, looks like he's got his limbs and he zips off. We see they're not, they're his prosthetics. And he goes flying up this wall because he was originally a rock climber. And right. That's it. And so this was before the Boston Marathon bombing. So when all those people lost limbs, he started in with all these other associations to like provide. Right. So the Media Lab has like morphed into all this other stuff, but it did start off mostly like art technology. So animation, 3D rendering, they invented GPS. They invented GPS there. So it uh, tells me how slow I'm running. Yes. That's, that's what I can blame. You can blame them for a lot of things. Is there a demand for robot opera? Is that like a big area that people are? I'm not seeing it. I did go to the How opera. was it? I mean, you know, it was, um, I mean, the music was good. He does, the, the guy, Todd Macover, who's the mm -hmm. head of that lab. Um, so he is a trained Juilliard artist, and he also went to MIT. So he's got this balance. So, like, the music is, is pretty good, and it's not, it's like humans singing with opera, I mean, with robots. Um, you know, I was on the edge of thinking it was a little hokey myself. But like he, you know, he's, he's all over the world doing this. Like it's, it's cause he's like the only one who actually understands music and is, is like, he's got real singers. So like he has opera singers singing alongside robots. Is this like Chuck E. Cheese where those, those, those things are, are talking to me and singing or does he have to go around the world with the I mean, big robots or is it just it, yeah, a... It's a little, it's a little bit like that, yeah. Really? Yeah, but it sounds much better than Chuck, Chuck E. Cheese. Chuck E. Cheese? And it's usually in some sort of opera house. Maybe that technology will filter down to Chuck E. Cheese. No, I don't know, because Chuck E. Cheese is very noisy and I think that's geared for the, like who's the real user at Chuck E. Cheese, right? Who is the real Kids? user? I wish it was the parents, although they pretend it's the parents because they'll right. give you like, I don't know if they still do this, but there was one Chuck E. Cheese I went to that even had like wine and beer available. <laughs> yeah, self-medication is important at but Chuck E. Cheese. I was like, well, there's a tipping point because like I have a toddler running around here. <laughs> do you know the story of Chuck E. Cheese? No. I read this someplace. The story of Chuck E. Cheese is that he grew up an orphan or lost his parents or his parents died when he oh. was a young mouse and he grew up not have, not ever knowing his birthday or having birthday parties. Uh -huh. And so to make up for that, he wanted to make uh -huh. sure that he was able to provide birthday parties for all the boys and girls. Oh, that's very sweet. Is that horrific? <laughs> I mean, it's a little horrific, right? I mean, the I, idea I mean, that I, it's very I, Disney. I, it's very Disney. I honestly always hated that. Um, and somehow my oldest, so my kids are nine years apart. 
um, somehow we managed to, by the by the youngest, wean the family off of that because like that just <laughs> being at Chuck E. Cheese, I don't know, made me not a happy person usually. Yeah, like I would make them go. We go like let's go for a walk in the woods. We're going to Walden Park. We're going to right. <laughs> We were actually talking about before, you know, we chatted about this MIT stuff and robots, the difference between customer and user experience. And, like, Chuck E. Cheese is a good example, right? There's a lot of user experience there because yes. there's things to touch and yeah. operate and interfaces and robots and whatever. But then the customer experience is, like, a, you know, a, to me as a parent is, like, different. Like, who's a user? Well, the kids are the users. Right. But who's the customer? Right, it's the parents. Is it the you know it's the part? Some extent, it is the parents because it's so intolerable for the parents. But it's weird because like that's a whole other line of thinking with a lot of products and theories for kids these days because it's almost like the kids and I read about this in a few just with marketing too that if they market to the kids, yep, they know the kids will bug the parents so much that the parents will give in. It's a knack factor. And it's called the knack factor. Right, right. So it's always, I remember as a parent, like now they're, you know, my youngest is 21, so we have a different conversation about money now. Right. Um, but I remember when they were younger, at a certain point, I was so disgusted. I mean, I'm the kind of parent who would make them go backpacking all the time. Right, in Vermont. We go camping, we, you know, I'm like, yeah, you can nag all you want, but... <sighs> It's gonna make it more likely you're not going to get it. Like right. <laughs> now, the nag factor so, is a thing, right? I no, mean, no, it sure. works for tons of parents, especially because there's this kind of parenting. I'm not sure what to call it now. Theory or approach that is not something I do, but or I try not to do. Which is, um, it's the persona of the parent who who find and may, I, I'm not trying to judge because maybe you're one of these parents. That, just who like if the kid is. Um, frustrated or not getting what they want, uh, that it's actually better not to let them be frustrated. Like, that, that that's a, an approach. Right. Um, and for me, I never, I guess it's because of how I was raised. Right. <laughs> you know, my dad's from Brooklyn. My mother's, uh, you know, a product of Holocaust survivors. Like, whining was never no, allowed. No, it's hard to whine. Not allowed. It did not get us anywhere right. other than, like, less than right. what we wanted. Um, but like I live in Newton, and tons and tons of parents don't want their kids to be frustrated or to suffer, or and that's their choice. I want my kids to suffer. Why should I be the only one? That's how I who's feel. Suffering. That's how I feel. If I'm I mean, going but, down. But more realistically, I want them to understand they won't always get what they want, right? And that they can learn to deal with feeling frustrated or feeling disappointed, and that they will be okay. Well, so let's take that for a second and then talk about that related to user experience or customer experience, right? Because so much is done yep. around, you know, decreasing the pain points exactly. or creating, um, you know, uh, wow experiences or wow moments. Right. So the, the issue is, though, what's the goal, right? right? So if we stick to kids for a second, my goal as a parent is to raise a well-rounded human being who will be independent of me. Right. That's my goal. That's not every parent's goal. Right. But that's my goal. As soon as possible. <laughs> like. You got to like, go. They were doing their laundry when they were 11 or 12. Like I. <laughs> right. I was like, uh, this is, you know, you want, you're complaining your laundry isn't done. Here's the washing machine and I will show you how to use it, you know. So, so that's a question of like, what is the goal? So as a parent, I think maybe I'm providing a good user experience. If my goal is to make them independent, then maybe some might say a pain point of a 12-year-old isn't that they should have to do their laundry, but that's an interpretation. Yeah. Because if my goal is that they should be independent, 
yeah, maybe it's a little annoying, but by but by the time they're in college, they'll they'll do their laundry, and it won't be an issue. I tell my I tell my fourteen year old um, there are girls her age who are bringing their younger siblings across Mexico, escaping violence in Central America, yes, and you can't that. unload the dishwasher. We've had why can't See, that's I how mean, my parents why can't you I mean right. I'm, right. you know that they were they were working in mills far younger than you exactly. and losing limbs and going back to work the exactly. next day and like you can do it you can't you clean can, your room right what, what is this what's you wrong and then I failed yeah it's, well no because it's also it's like first of all teenagers forget it right. <laughs> especially true. like I think they don't ret- I feel like by around 16 they start to get better but what I've noticed is it's really 25 <laughs> well that's when their that's brains fully develop right before and then. that's when they start to really, right. you know, like, because even my youngest is 21. He's incredibly mature. He's the one who's living in Amman. I'm gonna, right. But he's still 21. He thinks he's invincible. And actually, he's more invincible than I am at my age. But nevertheless, he's a human being. He doesn't realize that he's a human being. Right. Guys so, are like that. And yeah. Going but, back but to... But the UX. The UX thing. And then, the, you know, part of it, you know, you know, customer experience. I don't know if user experience has the same definition, but customer experience goes to... The perception that customers have, uh, you know, about the sum of the interactions with a company's products, goods, and services, whatever, and so there's two parts to that, right? There's really the 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 perception you have and the expectations you had going in. Yes. Because you can have really low expectations. Yes. And it meets those expectations, and your experience, your perception is like, yeah, it's exactly what I thought I was going to be. Well, that's the thing. So to me, it's all about setting the goals. You know, and then sort of figuring out how you're aligning to the goals. And I do love the personas and use cases as a way to sort it out. And just to go back, so my background, like when I was at MIT, we were talking about usability as all of these things. It was designing the user interface. It was what we now call UX. And it, it's what was what we now call CX. Ah. That's why from where I'm sitting and right. from World Usability Day, that's what it is. And the struggle that I have, and some of my peers in a little older than me, um, and I think Bill Griffins is sort of in this direction, but you know, not 100%, where like we, they don't even, Bill Griffins doesn't do this, but some of the other folks who are industry academic, they just talk about HCI. They just call everything HCI. Right. And HCI. Kind of an old term now. Yes, except for what they're saying is similar to what I'm saying, but it's, it's, like, it's like we're, uh, we're a product of our success in the sense of, you know, back when I graduated in 85, mm-hmm. usability was everything, right? Right. And here we are now with all these defined areas and methods, and, and I think it's great. I think it's great that we have that because we are evolving, right? Right. And we're evolving our thinking and how we're dealing with technology, and that's fabulous. But um, I get frustrated with the, I don't know how to put it nicely. This, I'll just say it, my word, the, the pickiness over, you know, like, if you don't mind. Now you're going to write on the board now. Right? So you go like UX, right, CX, I don't know. You can't put a design person around a whiteboard and not have it right? like, be used. Are we, like, where are we, right? And the so, Venn diagram of UX, CX, right? and UI. Is this, like, or is it all just usability? I mean, so, no. Yeah. So that's the problem with me is uh, for for me because oh and then there's also other people say that's HCI and HCI but then some people say well HCI is just the tech but it's not you know it's not just the tech because it can't work if it's just the tech so is it worth arguing over that's that's kind of my thinking because when UPA changed their name to UXPA 
User Experience Professionals Association. They came to me because I started World Usability Day when I was done being president of UPA. So I was president for three years. Was that the Usability Professionals Association? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then, um, so that was 2005 was the first World Usability Day. So we, so this was, I don't know when the UPA turned into UXPA, but they asked me if I would change the name, and I said absolutely not uh, for many reasons. One is they were giving me no money at that point, so I didn't have to listen to them anymore. Sure. Um, and I also was feeling uncomfortable about contributing to this thing. <laughs> to me. Right. Um, and what's interesting is since World Usability Day started, now we have World IA Day and World IDX Day. And they kind of riff off of our themes. And I don't care. Like, So what is, you, what is World Usability Day like about? What was it, how was it founded? What was it meant to do? Right. How has it evolved to and today? Are we, we're yeah. Good, yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> World Usability Day uh, originally started, like I said, in 2004. Um, so I was a board member of the Usability Professionals Association, and I was a director of outreach along with uh, Nigel Bevan, um, who passed away about a year ago. And, and we uh, wanted to do something to sort of, you know, teach the world. This was 2004. We wanted to teach the world about how technology should work better for everybody. Right. And I was working at Kodak at the time, and I was particularly annoyed um, when you know when people would blame themselves for technology not working. So, mm -hmm. so we were at when I was at Kodak, we were doing like all sorts of digital photography, and sometimes really smart people, like say a surgeon, would come to use a I don't know some simple photo program, and if they couldn't figure it out, they literally said, "When it comes to technology, I'm not that smart." And that just made me right. so angry because they were smart people. So why did they give up their intelligence to a machine? Like they just assumed if they couldn't figure it out, it was because they were not smart enough. So we wanted, so Nigel and I wanted to think of a way to spread the word. And um, we came up with a day where we could focus on it. Um, based on Earth Day, and the reason hmm. I, we were looking at Earth Day because Earth Day in 1970 uh, was started by approximate, well, what are the numbers? Something like at least 200,000 students and a few members of Congress marching on the United Nations. And they did it for a couple of years, and if you recall, 1970, 1971, there was a lot of marches and demonstrations going on around the I United States. don't quite recall it because I was were, one year were, old. Yeah, okay. Well. <laughs> I don't recall it. I've no, seen no, pictures. No, no. So maybe you've heard about it, but I was uh, much older than that. Right. Not much, not eh, much older, older. But I was old enough to remember. Right. Um, and there was dem. I was old enough to remember because my parents took me to some of these demonstrations against the Vietnam War. And from what I recall, but also mostly what I read about history, is there were so many demonstrations going on in the 70s that Nixon, Richard Nixon, President of the United States at the time, was getting kind of annoyed. So I think he wanted to throw the, the activists a bone. Um, and so because of this Earth Day thing and members of Congress marching against the United Nations, so Nixon started the Environmental Protection right. Agency. Right. I think, and of course I don't know this for sure, but I think he wanted to throw the activists a bone. It's almost like, look, look, I'm giving you something. Stop Leave me alone. annoying me let, about let, Vietnam. Let, let, Just, me, let me break into the Democratic headquarters yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I gave you Earth Day. Exactly. Like, right. here's your distraction. So, 
But in terms of Earth Day, what's so interesting is that it had a huge impact because it then became a day on the calendar of the United Nations. Sure. The EPA was started, which was a model for the rest of the world back then, and uh, the notion of saving the planet, recycling, was actually rolled out because of Earth Day, because there was a day every year that everyone around the world worked together to save the planet. So we thought, what if we had a day every year that people worked together, grassroots, to make technology usable for everybody? And when we said usable, we thought, you know, the digital divide usable, like technology usable, like, like not just I need a better user interface, I need the screen to look better, but like it should make the world better technology. So that was 2005. The first couple of years, we actually had some really interesting events sort of going off in that direction. So at, in Boston at the Museum of Fine Arts and also, I'm sorry, at the Museum of Science and in St. Louis at the Museum of Science and in a few malls in Brazil, we were having these events where um, people would set up tables for say sorting socks or there was one called Alarm Clock Alley where people would you know race to set the time on an alarm clock. Um, or sorting socks, like people would take turns sorting socks. And the spectators of, you know, watching these things would, would like, they were heard saying out loud, like, oh, I thought it was just me who couldn't figure out how to set an alarm clock or- Sort socks. The sort socks was also like, oh, I thought you only sorted socks by color. Look, they're sorting socks by how high the cuff is or what the size is or- There's a lot of ways to look at things right. is sort of the conclusion. Right. Um, and so that that was really fun. Um, what had happened, though, is around 2008, 2009, when the tech bubble burst, uh, we actually stopped you know, getting our funding. Uh, and so we were pretty much solely run on volunteers. So by 2010, um, when I came here, I wasn't really sure if World Usability Day would survive, partially because... It was just getting harder and harder to get sponsors, uh, and we were being run by solely volunteers. So I also thought coming here, I, you know, students. Um, what was interesting, though, is that um, as I was sort of stepping back and trying to see if there was still interest in running it, people from around the world started writing me and saying, what's going on with World Usability Day? Why, why aren't you sending out your newsletters, or why aren't you doing all that? And I realized that it had a complete life of its own, like a complete life of its own that had nothing to do mm. with me and Nigel who passed away. So so now we're at the point where it's, at, I'm sorry, in 2009, we had 10, we count, we were able to count because we had a staff, uh, 10,000 people around the world involved and about uh, 4,000 volunteers running events all around the world. Um, I think one of the things that started to happen is that um, World Usability Day was a platform for professional development in, in developing countries, so Eastern Europe, mm. South America, right. parts of the Middle East, India, started to have World Usability Day events as a way to have professional development, and it has definitely spun off all sorts of big uh, conferences like UX India, Germany now has their own website and they have, I think every year, between eight and ten events they're just doing. I, I figured everything would work in Germany. That, that'd it all be works. designed really well and people would just sit around and just go, oh, yes, look how nice we it works. made this. It works really well. Good for us. 
it works really well. So anyway, so it's evolved into yeah. something different, which is which is great though. Yeah, it makes me think. I, as you were talking, you know, I, I would imagine that the first UX professional ever was probably Homo habilis, the first person <laughs> to make tools who handed like the tool to someone else, and the other person goes, you right. know what, this is really doesn't work for me. It's or how really do you use this? Like how do you use a spear? How do you use right. this hammer? Uh -huh. And then the perf the guy who designed it, who made it, looking at the user like, what kind of idiot are you? Right. It should be obvious how you use this right. spear tip or this hammer because it's right there. So going back to Homo habilis, okay, we've probably great. had this issue around the designer. You know, doesn't yeah. know what I you know how to make anything, right. or the user's an idiot. Right. I mean, it's a great analogy because it's also part of, I think, psychology, which is a huge piece of what we now call user experience or customer. To me, right. it's part of all of it. And that's, you know, how do I know somebody else? Do I have empathy for them? Can I understand something that's not me? So can I understand an experience that's not my experience? Right. So that's part of evolution also. And I think part of that also is what made this an issue because I think it was the aha moment I'm not sure if it goes all the way back as far as you say, but maybe it does. The I think there's cave paintings. Okay, yeah. So then there's a, a focus no, group that's where right. they're trying to cave test painting. Cave painting. the design of a spear. Yes, yes. <laughs> I absolutely no, because even if it's okay, that's a great maybe <laughs> joke, but think about it. Like why are they drawing a picture of anyway, of a right. spear? There's some other knowledge that like something besides me is around is eventually going to read it or maybe right. this is the manual for the spear right here on the side of the cave and if it, if it was designed by steve jobs it would need a manual there would right. be no cave paintings it That's would just be right. you evident in the design of it yes how to use it yes i, I you know i i do think that i do, as you were talking it made me think about the sock sorting yeah the first maybe you know pop culture user experience phenomena was you know the blinking vcr light Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone, and that's, that became the joke, right? I have right. to help my parents set the VCR. I can't yep. set the VCR. Yep. It keeps blinking 12. Absolutely. That was a joke everywhere that people yes. were talking about. Yes, and that was sort of a turning point, um, I think, in the world of user experience or usability because I think it was actually a point where other people could say to the engineer, it, it's not working for me. Right. And But that's where it started to be a bit of a friction because... You know, and having gone to MIT, I can say this, you know, there's some very, very smart people developing technology, but they don't realize that everyone's not like them. And some, I'll just right. say my nice friends at MIT, sometimes will, I've heard them say, well, the user isn't so smart, that's why they can't figure it out. Right. And that's where I dig in with them and I'm like, oh God, no. You can't start with that premise because otherwise, what good is it, you know? So like, you're, you're doing it over here at MIT while Lucy Suchman is doing it on the West Coast at Xerox Park, right? right. Where she was videotaping the engineers That's right. trying to use their own Xerox machines yes. and not being able to figure out how That's to get it right. double-sided. Yeah, she made it, yeah. And for those who don't know or don't remember this, Xerox machines or copy machines used to be humongous. Right, right, right. And were like, right. you know, mission control panels. I mean, they were right. really complicated. And they were some of the same problems. So it's interesting you bring up Xerox Park because Xerox Park is where some of this initial innovation started. So I have friends who were, who were there. Me too. And, yeah, and, and, and what's amazing to me is, like, the whole thing with um, the icons, the, the mouse, the, the whole uh, thinking of analogies like file folders and trash cans and desktops... 
I mean, a lot of that evolved out of Xerox Park, and obviously some of it made it into, you know, the first Macintosh and all of that, um, and there was the spin-off to Apple, but um, a lot of that big work did start from Xerox. Uh, because, you know, those machines were hard to use. Yes. So they had to, you know, like from a business point of view, Xerox had to figure that out. Right. Otherwise, how were they going to sell them? So you start out saying, I want to fight against the man. Yeah. And then you end up, you know, you want to speak truth to power and you end up speaking truth to power, but in a design yes. environment. Yes. Yes. And it's interesting, too, because of my own career, and I didn't realize this recently till one of my students was... Uh, after she graduated was interviewing me about something and so I started off undergrad actually wanting to be an elementary school teacher okay and then uh, sort of evolved into art education and then I realized part of the way through that I just wanted to do art <laughs> so I focused on photography and graphic design and here I am fast forward to teaching design to graduate students so Right. So it's very so like it's Spulser. a full circle. I didn't plan it that way, although probably unconsciously I did. And World Usability Day is part of that journey because it's about you know sort of using design to make the world better ultimately. Right. So so it's an interesting evolution. We might say not full circle, but iterative. For th Ew, bingo. In terms of design language, we had yes. a, your journey mapping yes. was iterative at certain yes. points and then evolved to a different form Excellent. of experience. Uh, I'm going to use it. So you like that? <laughs> I know. Um, I am, yes. And so World good. Usability Day today, you talked about expanding it out. I mean, what's it? We take it for granted now that there's this thing about interface and usability in many places, but not all places. And so, like, what is the the next, you know, usability frontier for oh, usability? Thank day? you for asking. You're welcome. So, uh, for okay, so I have a three myself and several others uh, now have a three step plan. Okay. And the like, first one, like Elizabeth is, Warren. There's a plan. I know, I know, I know. We share a first name, but that's <laughs> I'm not running for president, but. Um, I think it is good to have a plan. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. So for sure. Um, and that's not an endorsement uh, right now. Right. Um, too early. Too Sitting early to out. get We're into. We're gonna that. wait and see. Too, too early to get into that conversation. But so um, I had this dream. We'll put it this this dream. Um, a few years after World Usability Day started, that just like Earth Day, World Usability Day should end up on the calendar of the United Nations. Uh, and I did a lot of research, and I found out how to do it, and I see on the calendar, the United Nations has a calendar of international events. Besides Earth Day, they have, you know, end genocide, you know, end hunger, but they also have things like World Book and Copy Day, World um, Intellectual Property Day. Shit, and, that's an exciting one. And yes, and <clears throat> World Creativity and Innovation Day. What day is that on? Uh, it's right before Earth Day. <laughs> do, they, do, they have a, do they have a ribbon? Uh, maybe. <laughs> a lot of the ribbon colors are gone now. It's like hard to find a good ribbon exactly. color exactly for that for new days. Exactly. Yes, we don't have we don't have a ribbon. Well, the design That's one. That's okay. Yes, we'll have <sighs> to. But uh, so the first goal was to get on the calendar of the United Nations. And uh, last year I was at um, the Kai uh, 2019 conference, okay. Computer Human Interaction. Yep. Uh, and I was on a panel um, about partially where the field is going and so I of course blurred you know we were talking at one point about our dreams and on the panel in addition to me was Elizabeth Churchill who's the uh, vice president of the Association from Compu of Computing Machinery 
which is sort of the mothership yep, for SIGTI. Yep, and Ben Schneiderman, who I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. um, and Elizabeth Gerber, who was Designed for America. She started that. She's from Northwestern. Three Liz's so far. Yeah, that was that was the best part. Uh, yeah. And then Charlie on Kreitzberg from Princeton. Okay. He actually organized the panel. So here we are talking about our dreams, and I just blurt out, I want World Usability Day to be on the calendar of the United Nations. And Ben says, why stop there? Why don't we create our, new, our own version of the EPA? Why don't we create the World Usability Day organization? Mm. Okay, so that spun off this little project that I'm now working on. So step one, get on the calendar right. of the United Nations. I just need three uh, ambassadors from three countries to sponsor us, and that will happen. And I have uh, about five or six pe people in five or six countries working on that. My hope is that that will happen in the next two years. The next thing, which we're already doing also, is to connect to the uh, sustainable, goal, uh, sustainable Development Goals that the United Nations put out. Sure. And those are, those are goals uh, also looking towards 2030, but they're goals not just, oh, obviously, save the planet goals, um, sustainability, but they're also information, you know, infrastructure and, you know, water and, and communication and education and all sorts of things that we UX, CX, excuse me, um, HCI, usability right. people can contribute to. So we already started trying to connect the dots with these projects because the idea is if we can connect with these projects, then we are actually more connected and aligned with, with these goals with the United Nation. And most of the, all of the days on the international calendar are connected with these projects, goals. these goals. Right. So step two is to set up projects. So it turns out Cornell University already has citizens computing. They're already doing some of these projects in okay. our computer science. So we're going to connect with them. We're going to connect with others in, in all different countries to do that. There's a HCI Across Borders um, group coming out of SIGHI that we're connecting with um, and a whole bunch of others. Uh, so, so the idea is get on the calendar of the United Nations connect to these goals, and then maybe Ben Schneiderman will launch off and we'll start this organization. Uh, that to me would be an awesome if it happens, but like a reach. Um, the other two I think we're already on our way to doing. And I think the benefit of doing that is, is then we do become connected to something larger than us. Because the whole idea wasn't just to make us all a lot more money, it was actually to improve the planet, uh, yeah. the way Earth Day. It's funny. As you were talking about that, I think it was last summer, I went to a journey mapping workshop. Mm -hmm. And uh, one team, so I think a team of three women that were there were from John Deere. Okay, yeah. And I said, um, you know, and they, they're like, we do user experience. Okay. I'm like, a John Deere. She's like, oh, yeah. I said, so what, you know, what do you do? And she said, well, um, because of the requirements of the EU and the ability of American farmers to sell in the EU, they have to be able to demonstrate and certify and track um, the kind of seeds that are being used where and, and where, you know, what kind of farming or agricultural methods they're using and all of that is tracked through this interface that's in the tractor and while the tractor is bumping along, you have to be able to manipulate and navigate this stuff on that yeah. screen. And she was going in all this detail. Right. I, was, I was sitting there going, oh my God. Right, of course. I had no idea, obviously, because right. why would I have any idea, about that intersection then between you know user experience, user design, 
you know, regu legal regulations, right. you know, uh, tr you know, national treaties, Absolutely. and sustainability of the environment. Exactly. In yeah. a John Deere tractor. Yeah, yeah. All those things intersecting in that one moment when that one person is right. driving it in, you yeah. know, the hay field or whatever, yeah. the soy field, and trying to make sure that, you know, this area is farmed with this and that area is farmed with that, and we're, you know, can, we can actually account for all of these things. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, which is why I made that diagram, because I do think that's all connected. And circling back to my friend Nigel Bevan, so he was um, one of the uh, folks who uh, put together the uh, ISO standards around all of that, and I, I can never remember the numbers right off the top of my head. Yep. But part of the ISO standards, which is adopted by the EU, is this whole notion of you know technology working, that it's usable. Um, the first standard was for, uh, you know, desktop computer systems, uh, but then it evolved out to everything. I have another goal for you then. Okay. You should put the, uh, the idea of technology being usable yeah. in the UN Human Rights Declaration. Okay. So okay. Should, Thank should, you. Right? While I'm at it. Yes. Because uh, I should yes. not be frustrated by yes. the technology I have to the point where I'm losing years off my life, well, figurative or, or literally, because you can't use it. Right, and it's interesting you raise that too because one of the things we notice now with World Usability Day is we're able to you know, connect with different countries and how they're using technology. So we discovered, for example, some of the developing countries, uh, when they start catching up technology-wise, they'll skip over some things that we say here in America or in Europe take for granted. So one example is banking. So in South Africa, they skipped over the ATMs. They went straight to the phone. Interesting. And and all their banking is on the phone. Like like here it's gone the other way where, you know, okay, we have Venmo or Zello or all these other things where we can pay each other on our phone, but that's late. We are using that late. Yeah. So in terms of the usability for for countries where that are going skipping straight over, it's almost more crucial that whatever this banking app they're using in South Africa is works well because they didn't, you know, that, that community didn't sort of evolve with the technology. They're jumping right into it farther along downstream. So that's a whole other interesting thing uh, to I'm, think about. Yeah, I'm, I'm old now in that, you know, I'm looking at the Samsung Pay on my phone, and I'm going, oh, I don't know. I'm not trusting that. But here, here's this plastic card with some kind of chip in there. I'm just going to stick it in. That I trust. Or I'll go online right. and buy stuff. Right. But the Venmo or the Samsung Pay... You know, for me, it's just like I'm having that cultural dissonance of I'm supposed to pay with my phone? How is right. that? Go I don't understand. Here's cash. So it's so interesting because I started off that way, but then when my kids were uh, in college, they actually got me on Venmo. And the reason was is it was easier for them to, like, get their allowance or whatever because right. they were using it. For their friends, for their, like, they go out and divide up the bill on, you know, like, I don't know, a pizza or whatever right. the heck they're doing. And they're not even carrying cash. They're not right. even carrying cash. And so I started to use Venmo. Like, they pushed me into it. And now I love it because also, like, there's there's good record keeping. Like, I just went through this with my son who's in Oman. And we were trying to sort out, like, because, you know, I don't know. They, you know, when the kids are far away, they, and, you know, they're still on the payroll, as I call it. Right. You know, there's a lot of like, will you pay for this? Or did I do that? Or, or did you? Whatever. Right. And so we were looking together through the Venmo feed. 
to track things. Interesting. And I found it really helpful, but I was surprised because I didn't. Want, I resisted. I resisted. Right. And then they were like, "Well, you know, mom," because I said, "Oh, I'll just transfer money from my bank account to your right. bank account." But there's a limit. So my bank has a limit on how much I can do that month. And because I'm dealing with a young adult... Well, that's good, because then you can tell the kids, I love to kids, but I, I've hit my limit. It's the banks. I did that. No, I started that way. And then I realized... But then there was little things that... Like, for me, it ended up still being convenient to Venmo. Because, okay, I wasn't going to give them more than they needed, so I would give them less. <laughs> that's my back right. to our parenting. Right, right. I was like, you can make do, and if you're really, you know... Um, so, so then I started to realize actually it was helpful to know. So, for example, uh, renting or buying textbooks, and depending on you know what they were studying, those could be really expensive. Sure. Um, and so, usually, what what I did finally once we had Venmo is I said, go find the cheapest approach, and then Venmo me as opposed to what my father did is just wrote me a check and said, you know, make this work, which. Right. Maybe that was easier back then too. But I mean, anyway, well, I think well, that's a good yeah, that's a good point, right? Was it easier back then? Is it better now? That's one of the long existential questions, right? Exactly. That we continuously ask ourselves about right. these about these developments, where you know, the whole other topic for another time. But right. you know, Mike, the fact that when I when I was growing up, we could only watch cartoons on right. Saturday morning between X and Y time slots. Exactly. And now my kids can watch cartoons whenever they want, and they can go on demand whenever they want, and they can go on their tablet whenever they want. Yep. You yep. know the on-demand generation. Yep. So to speak, and and going back to this point about the importance of frustration. Yep. And expectation setting that if we're giving people whatever they want, then they'll start to want whatever they want. Exactly. And then we're in a lot of trouble. Exactly, and then you know, sort of going back to the, the parenting or the educator. You know, then the onus is on us, especially on parents, to regulate the unregulated world, right? So, like, when my kids were growing up, we had this rule. I'm not saying we were able to stick with it all the time. But if they wanted an hour on the screen, they had to have an hour off the screen. Okay. So, they wanted to be on for two hours. Okay, we're going to go for a hike for two hours. Then you get to be on the It doesn't include sleep. Definitely just like, ah, you sounded like they, they were like that. Negotia- or what about eating? I'm like, no, no, we don't eat in front of a screen anyway. That's if I'm in the shower that's for right. an hour. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's amazing they have an alternate to lawyers. But right. <laughs> to negotiate. Loopholes. But, um, but also as educators, we have the same problem. I mean, I notice sometimes in class, okay, I clearly have students online doing something on social media. Right. Maybe they're even talking about me to each other. Who the heck knows? Right. How am I dealing with that, right? Sometimes right. directly, sometimes indirectly. Sometimes I'll just ask them a random question, and they clearly haven't been paying attention. But is there a benefit? Because I know sometimes I'm in a meeting. Let's say I had a project once with NASA. They had zero patience explaining things to me. So they would just keep throwing out terms, and I would just sit there Googling the terms as they spoke so I could minimize the questions that they thought were stupid questions. So maybe my students are doing that. I don't know. Probably you not. Know. Probably not. They're probably talking about me. No. That's <laughs> probably not but even that. They're probably just not even paying attention. They're probably, it. right, having their own life online. But it's a, it's a good question of, you know, like, how do you deal with that technology? How do you deal with what's available? I mean, my parents, maybe I can, my parents limited how much TV time we could, we could watch. I remember that. Yeah. Um, and my brother and I had to, like, negotiate which show to watch. 
Well, part of part of that design is not just creating experiences, but setting expectations. Mm, right? mm-hmm, Whether mm-hmm. and in many ways, as designers of whatever experiences we're designing, we also have to include expectations. Where I will tell my students right. that I know that there are professors who will give you their cell phone number so they can you can contact them anytime. I am not one of those professors. Oh yeah. You know, or oh, I'm absolutely. not going to uh, respond to your email anytime you email me. I actually have a friend of mine who's a consultant who she will respond to emails on the weekend, but she will set the the, 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 the email to go out on Monday at 9 a.m. Oh, same. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I do the same. Setting those expectations yep. that, you know, where if I walk into a McDonald's, I'm not necessarily expecting a, you know, a five-star meal. Right. No offense, McDonald's. Right. But at the same time, I think that as we expect everything anytime, yeah. will we have to explicitly set expectations that right now we might take for granted? Because we know certain opportunities or experiences don't exist in every moment. Absolutely. And I think it's important, and it's, and it's funny you said that because I mentioned this um, to my students. Uh, you know, I have students who work for me um, at the User Experience Center, and it's the same thing. I'll tell them, you know, I may respond to an email uh, at a time you're not in, the office, like it could be Monday through Friday, nine to five, but they're not there every, mm-hmm. you know, and I said, just, ign- you can ignore it until you come in. I said, but I need to respond because otherwise I, I get backed up. So yeah. if it's if it's office time, I'll respond. Otherwise I'll save it and send it out Monday morning. Same thing, but it's expectations. Which goes into what I love studying, which is the, which is use in context. Oh yeah, okay. You know, yeah. because now we have the, so- we have the, the functionality yeah. And we have the social use. Yes, you know, absolutely. You know, when I ask my students, is, is email an asynchronous or synchronous technology? <laughs> they will say, well, it's asynchronous. I said, well, is text messaging a synchronous or asynchronous? And they'll say, well, it's synchronous. I said, what's the difference? It's not in the functionality. No. It's in the use. That absolutely. If, if you email somebody and they email you right back, it's a little freaky. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, what are you doing sitting around just answering emails? Right, exactly. But if I text you and you text me right back, there's an expectation. Right. You're absolutely right. It's, so it's nothing to technology. do with the design. It has to do with our orienta- orientation to the design and our expectations of it, how it's right. supposed to be used. And it's interesting you say that because I go back to photography since that's been a thread in my career and having worked at Kodak and... My thesis was actually on the first Kodak camera. Oh. The first, and it's in my book. Which has come back around, by the way. My kids have Kodak cameras now. Yeah. Uh, digital so, ones or the no no oh those those one the ones those. where the thing spits out the bat you know yep, the instant yep. cameras which yeah 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 more expensive now than they used to be. oh well because it used to be Polaroid right and that one got that was yeah. a different thing with Kodak but so in uh, like 1888 photography was um, a very very difficult technology you had to either have a donkey and cart and develop the film out in the field if you wanted to do landscape or you know heavy equipment in the studio and your and your I don't know, subject had to sit still for an hour or whatever right. it was. So George Eastman figured out a way to break down the technology so we could do like dry plates, rolls, and then eventually sure. sold it to people at an amazing price. So suddenly everyone could be taking pictures right. and everyone could be a photographer. So that has evolved in so many interesting ways. But one, back to your point about like the design of the technology and how it's used, it has, photography has turned into almost this this funny sacred right where like you could be standing somewhere and somebody's trying to take a picture and so you don't walk in between the picture and the camera right you stop walking right most people just stop walking because somehow 
the space between the camera and the thing, the human being, is sacred space. Sacred space, sure. <laughs> People don't walk around it. Right. I mean, that's evolved into the selfie, and that's a whole other conversation, but the technology and how it's used, it, it's so interesting. And, and like, people expect if a camera comes out, they will smile, they will change how they are, they're going to be recorded forever. Um, and so it's an interesting sort of question about expectation and how it's used, and I think it's, it's also, like, the design of the technology. Right. So... Like texting, going back to your texting, that's on my phone. That's like designed for my phone. Right. Email is not necessarily designed for my phone. Right. It's designed for a bigger screen. Right. Uh, more keys. Right. So I could type something longer and involved. Texting was supposed to be quick little messaging uh, fast. So I just did that today. Someone emailed me about a meeting and I texted. I even used the word. I emailed back. I texted back. I emailed back a text response, which was short and abrupt. And then as soon as I sent it, I went, oh, hell. Right. I didn't, uh, I probably should have said hi. Right, exactly. Thank, but, yeah, yeah, but I didn't do the salutations. I didn't do the yeah. formality, which yeah. well, I had students one time back when Instant Messenger was big. I said, go find me the instructions on how to use Instant Messenger. Nice. And they, they came back with you know, how to send a message. And I right. said, no, no. Right how people use it. I want the instructions on how people use it. That's nice. You know, the abbreviations, the expectations, yeah. all those yeah. normative things, and that it doesn't exist. Right. I said, then how do you all know how to use it the same way? Right. Which is a sociological point yes, about how exactly. we use technology, right? Um, and I, by the way, my, one of my first jobs was at a one-hour photo lab. Oh, no way. That's hysterical. Wow. That's yeah. great. It was, uh, it was interesting looking at some of the pictures because yeah. the things that people take of themselves I know. and text now, we did back then. I know. But we got them developed in one-hour photo labs and, and, and strangers would look at them. Yes. No, that's funny because I had after... And sometimes I, make copies for themselves. No, I never did. No, but. I, I, and it's funny you said that because I also had, like, after I undergrad before I started doing all the, the arts or while I was trying to do all the art yeah. stuff I worked at a photo store and, and one of the jobs was developing film and I remember sometimes we would be like did you yeah yeah we're not supposed to talk about that but like people I don't think when they took pictures maybe they didn't realize like the the film the people developing the film are gonna see this. you saw it and uh <laughs> and, and you could not see it sometimes <laughs> and you just and you you'd see like you know once in a while you'd be going through the negatives right. And at least the, the machine we would use, like a Fuji machine, yep. would add or subtract densities. Maybe yeah, yeah, do yeah, some yeah. minor color correction. Yep, exactly. And so yeah. you could read the negative, like yeah. how many densities you yeah. have to kind of do right. it. Once in a while, you come across a negative where you just stop for a second and go, what's going on in this thing? Right, exactly, because you couldn't help but notice. Yeah. Just like, oh. like, oh, yeah, i gotta, I got to make sure to kind of see what that looks like. And whether you're going through and making sure that the pictures are okay, right. you stop and go, Wait a second. Right, right, right. But then after a while, you got so used to seeing that stuff, you just kind of just kind of keep going. Right, which is sort of maybe what's happening now with all the imagery that goes out on the internet and that we see or that comes by yeah. us. We're like, um, you know, we've gotten used to it. Gotten so used to it, it sensitized. Th- throw up so many red flags. but. And so when's World Usability Day this year? So November 14th. It's the second Thursday of November every year. Every year. And, you know, it, it, I mean, ideally it's, it's nice to do it on that day, but we have all sorts of events sort of the week of. So, for example, I'm actually going to Amman, Jordan, and mm-hmm. I'm going to do the first ever World Usability Day event there, but it'll be on November 12th. <laughs> because Thursdays in the Middle East. Holy day? Is, I guess. Well, it's like, it's like a Friday afternoon. Like, yeah. it's like, it's like. 
because the weekend is Friday and Saturday. Right, the Holy Day is Friday, so it's and, like right, so then you Saturday night. Yeah, so then you can't really do an event. It'd be like trying to do a professional event on a Friday or Saturday night right. here. Nobody's going to go, so like moved it a little earlier. Um, and then there's also, we had a, in trying to find the magic day, uh, we did a whole survey of countries to figure out like holy days, national holidays, bank holidays, you know, what's a day that you can't have an event on? And we came up with basically the second week in November <laughs> seemed sure. to be the best. And we discovered sometimes in the United States you'll get an election on the Tuesday. Usually it's because the election's always the first Tuesday, but sometimes in the United States. But sometimes that could, like if, let's say, a week starts on a Wednesday, you know, a month starts on a Wednesday, then that. So anyway, so we came up with the second Thursday as a day that in most parts of the world there isn't something big that we're competing with. So. Is there a usability saint? Oh, no, but we should think of We should totally think about what, what saint might I mean, actually be good already, or maybe we can... Get a saint. Yeah, that's such a great idea because we have so many people who've done amazing designs. Because if we can get a, need... a usability candle, we can light on to the usability yes, saint on usability thank day. You. That's a great idea. So it's all I'm coming together. That. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe I'll have to think about Maybe that. Maybe apply to the pope. Now. The pope might yeah. be a good person to ask about that. I don't. Maybe he's but, online. Right, we could do that. The only challenge we have is to balance all the world's religions not that that's you know sure. so we have to figure out how to how to do that so if we ask the pope we also want to ask i don't know there's not really a head rabbi but maybe that or a head imam or <laughs> yeah we maybe i'd have to get a committee together <laughs> more, more head imams in the sunni tradition than right you might have to go to al-azhar or someplace right. like that and okay. ask one of one of them that's fair right if they right. could uh, find a sunnah right and around then, usability Yes, thank you very much for that. Or the yes. prophet had difficulty in using something, yes. and one of his uh, followers had to help him. Ooh, that can be a discussion I can have while I'm in a mind. Right, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. It might be a sooner around so there. interesting. And then also have to be careful because while the Pope does represent quite a few Christians, certainly doesn't represent all of them. No, so, so I'm told. So I don't know because I'm... Jewish. So well, you might, yeah, but, you can go to find an Anglican guy right. about that. Okay, the, I could balance you know, that. The, uh, but I would Archbishop say, of Canterbury can help right, with the Anglican balance, traditions. Yeah, the balance. And then maybe that, I need uh, a Southern Baptist minister from the United States. And then it's, I mean, and then even, you know, I can't really pick one brand of rabbi either because we have all my, that, That's not my area of expertise. I'll let you work that out. Okay. That, so, I'll just, so again, maybe I'll just put together a committee, which is sort of what I did before of different countries, different you know, belief systems see what and shakes see out. what we can do together. Because right. the idea is really to do something together so we can not just improve the world, but, you know, be be a part of something bigger than ourselves. All right. I like so, it. Thank you very that's much. That's the message. Thank you for having me. It was a My great pleasure. conversation. Very good.